If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You might need a pen and paper because I've got a few things going on that I need to tell you about. I'm doing two shows with Helen Rose, former Queensland policewoman, and the show is called The Consequences of Murder. We're doing the first one on the 12th of August, at the Thirsty Crow in Wagga Wagga. We're then doing another show at the Victorian State Library Village Roadshow Theatre on the 15th of October. Then I'm coming up to Sydney because you've asked and I've listened. I'm doing the Mornington Monster on the 1st of October at the Auditorium, 37 Reservoir or Reservoir, depends where you went to school, uh, street in Surrey Hills, New South Wales. And did I mention filming started from a TV series? There is just a little bit happening in my life and it's all because of you, my listeners. Thank you. Tickets through Eventbrite. Have a great week. Uh, Hello and thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And just a couple of things I'd like to ask you to consider. Firstly, my guests share their personal stories, which others may see differently. No one will see a situation the same. It's just human nature. Uh, Secondly, my podcasts aren't suitable for children and some adults for that matter. So please consider if it's right for you and contact Lifeline or any other support service if you find yourself affected by my subject matter. I was getting cold and tired. 
and I just thought, I'm going, this, this is it for me, I'm, I'm dying, I'm going I here. This is part two of an incredible interview with Helen McMurtry, who attended a domestic violence incident with two colleagues in New South Wales and where Helen was shot in the neck and her colleagues were also injured. Helen nearly lost her life on the 18th of January 2020. It's not that long ago, is it? Today, she continues to tell her story of the courage and bravery shown not only by herself, but by many who attended to help, but none more so than her two colleagues, who being injured themselves, pulled her to safety and basically shielded her from further possible uh, gunshots. Helen, at the time, was the mother of four children and she shares the moment that her kids couldn't cope with seeing their mum days after being shot. She also shares the long-term effects of her injuries, both physical, which are many, uh, and psychological. And I've got to say there is <laughs> there's a few lighter moments, but one of them is when Helen shares what she thought of may have been her last vision before passing away, a very, very handsome chopper pilot. Oh, that woman, seriously. Uh, anyway, look, I hope you, uh, I don't know if enjoys the right word, but it's an incredible story. And as I said, Helen is an incredible woman. Thanks for listening. And Mark has said to me, we, we talked about, he told me about the second shot. And I said, has he, has he? And I, I put my finger up under my chin, um, oh, yeah. meaning suicide. And at that stage, and I know this is going to be hard if the family hears it, at that stage that's what I had hoped for. Um, not, not as anything against him. He did not deserve that. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm just saying now I know that they're safe. If that has happened, yeah. he can't come after any of us. And that that was my thought behind that. Um, it breaks my heart that that he did that to himself um, and to his family. Uh, they don't have him anymore. But that by doing that, at, in that moment only, I knew that we were all safe, um, and especially Sam, because I was meant to protect her. Um, and that was my failing. Gee, Helen, you, gee, if you don't mind me saying, you're being terribly harsh on yourself. Like, um, to to feel like that, it's it's very lovely of you to think like that. But I think Narelle, it goes to Hen's, um, just her soul. If I can interject here, because oh, ab. Absolutely it does. I, I just think, my God, Pia, mm. I agree. It says a lot about it, but she, how can you protect somebody when you've been shot yourself? Mm. There's so much leading up to that, though, isn't there? That's 
that's yeah. the thing. It's, yeah. it's what, yeah. you know, I'll always ask myself till I die, what else should I have done? If I had done this or if I had said this, would that girl not have gone through this? Would she be a few years in the job now and not dealing with what she's dealing with? She returned to work. That girl is beyond proud. I, I am of her. She is amazing to, to oh, I can hear that. put yeah. that uniform on and carry a gun and to go to a domestic Mate, she she is she is amazing, more amazing than than me. As in, I don't that sounded so dicky. I don't think I'm amazing, but <laughs> I think I, you're in amazing. Four year weeks, I think you're amazing, <laughs> Helen. It's okay. We all think you're amazing. <laughs> in four weeks in the job, I wouldn't yeah. have gone back. Going through that, I I I just say it's like Sam. Sam is even worse on herself, and I hate that. Yeah, yeah. But like I've said to her, Sam, like to her, she did an amazing job for her time in the police. She didn't run. She didn't go and hide in the car. You hear some police of one week, one year, ten years doing that, and I, I'm not putting them down at all, that's, that's, that's what their body told them to do. Mm. She didn't. She stood there and she had my back the whole time. She, she did not leave me and I know that if he had come out to, to come back to us, yeah. I know she, she, would have, she would have fought to the end. Um, and she doesn't see that in her, and that breaks me. Um, she doesn't see, she doesn't see the importance of staying, um, and the the guts and the strength to stay in a situation like that. Um, and the bravery, yes. Like the, I, I agree, Helen. That you do here, and we're not. Um, we're not criticising anybody that does anything in a situation like you've been in, but how brave of Sam, you're right, to actually stay with you and, and, and you, as you say, not run. But how is Sam, we will get to how you are these days, but Sam was actually, uh, didn't she get some fragments of a bullet herself? She, she did, and she played that down. I didn't even know that she had been shot until after I got out of hospital or possibly while I was in hospital and had come out of a coma. She, I didn't know up at the Gleninus Hospital. She sat off to the side she had, because the bullet was shot into the ground, um, the fragments and the bullet obviously um, had like from, from the gravel and the bullet, it has then sprayed up and that's how all three of us got shot. 
Okay. So, like I said, Mark got his face ripped open <laughs> along his cheek. I got um, my neck, left side of my neck and left side of my leg just above my knee. And Sam, Sam had um, like a scrapes, uh, um, abrasions across the top of her head. Uh, I can't say anything bad about the police in all of this, but I can say that her injuries may not have been acknowledged the way I believe they should have been. What about her bravery? That's right. That's that's the outside stuff. Um, it's the inside stuff uh, that is it's uh, definitely harder to see and much harder for people to deal with mm. um, she stuck around and she stayed there and she had my back just as a partner should she needs to give herself a lot more credit for the person that she is i think you both do i agree with what you're saying but also I can hear, I mean, I can hear the uh, respect, uh, so many things, the love you have for Sam, I can hear that. But isn't it funny how we think of so many others, and I understand how you feel about Sam, but also how we sort of... um, yeah, we put everyone else in front of ourselves and listen to you. You know, you're putting Sam. You're worried about the, the Mark and his injuries, and you've been shot in the bloody neck. Oh goodness! Well, I could talk underwater. So, um, yes, you've met your match here. The whole series, not just one podcast. Is that what you're saying? Um, I think most people in that situation would, you know. I always remembered some of the training, the AAO training, which is the, um, you know, like our weapons training. And the first time some training came out, it was, okay, if your partner gets shot and they're, you know, still conscious and breathing, throw a bandage and keep moving, you've got to get rid of the threat. And I just thought... I ain't fucking doing that. <laughs> I'm not going to be walking over people laying there in their police uniform and throw them a bandage and say, "Here, yeah, stick this in your wound." I will be, I will be down there with them because, especially if yeah. they were not going to survive, they're not going to be doing that on their own. They're going to have someone there with them. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, I've always said I believe the police do the best that they possibly can in the circumstances with the money that they have with the locations where they can do all this training but when when it is truly happening and the emotions are there and you have people worrying about never seeing their children or their partner again it's something that can't be taught, uh, how you will react to something like that. 
Um, no, you're right. You can't be, you can be taught a lot of things, but what you can't um, put into your, your training is panic yep. and emotions. You just can't do that. And, and I totally get where you're coming from with that. Mm. You, you say, uh, do you remember going to hospital? Did you pass out or anything while no, you're on the ground? I was conscious the whole time. Really? Yeah. Once, once I knew that the threat was gone, I told Sam that she has to be quiet, be quiet, because I need to tell you something. And... I think she knew what I was going to be saying. You know, it's that, that thing that you, you want messages passed on because you don't think you're going to make it. I remember I was just getting cold um, and I was getting tired and I thought I've been here a while now. I, I'm sure I'm bleeding. I, you know, I, was, I, was, I could feel how wet my clothes were. Um, yeah. And so... I said, I need to tell you something. I need you to remember something for me. And she's like, no. And I'm like, well, you will. Like, yes, I'm going to tell you something and I need you to pass it on to my kids. And so she's thinking, oh, God, I can't I can't do this. No, I don't want to hear it. You're going to, and she's telling me, no, you're going to be telling them, I, you know, no, no. And I'm saying, Sam, you need to listen to me. And um, I remember just thinking, I can't really say too much. I just couldn't find the words, but I just said, tell my kids that I love them and to be good. Um, I just <laughs> I just wanted them to grow up to be good people. Um, yeah. I know they will. I know they will, but I, um, I just needed them to know that they were on my mind. They were, they were all that were on my mind at that point. At that point, um, could you hear like were there sirens or did you know that people were coming like the ambos were coming to get you or to help you or it sounds like it was just the three of you there battling on your own and I'm not criticising anyone for you know I wasn't there but did you know that there were other people on the way? I don't suppose you did because you haven't heard Sam ask for Mark, the urgent, have yeah, you? Mark, I, I saw Mark on the radio and I knew living in Glen Innes or working in Glen Innes for that long that there's no other cars around, there's no other police on duty in Glen Innes. Uh, in an instance where more police are required, they will be flying over from Inverell, which is 70 kilometres away. Winterfield is 100 kilometres away. Armadale is 100 kilometres away. So they'll be flying over from those locations. You're looking at maybe half an hour. Um, because at night you also need to worry about kangaroos on the road as well at night. Uh, recalling police officers, they've obviously got to answer the phone in the middle of the night, get up, get in their car, drive to work, get all their appointments on and then get to the location. So I, I knew the police wouldn't, police of any kind would not be there 
for at least 20 minutes. And I knew just knowing how, how the AMBOs have to operate, they can't come in until that scene is declared safe. And yeah. although we suspected that the man had taken his own life and was no longer a threat, it wasn't guaranteed. Um, obviously, Mark is not going to walk back to the house and have a look um, so too openly, but he did sort of have a bit of a sneaky peek as much as he could still being safe and it he could see the man on the balcony and it appeared from that distance that he wasn't moving, but that still was not a guarantee. So um, he was relaying all that to the radio and the poor Ambos obviously, you know, they were on their way to Emmerville and they got called back. So they're having to sit off. They're being told to sit off. It hasn't been declared safe. Um, Sam's, you know, yelling out, you know, as we all would have been thinking because, like I said, a minute, the millisecond sounds like, it feels like forever. So she's she's yelling, where are the ambos? And, and so it did seem like forever. So you you were really on your you were on your Pat Malone. You had no one but the three of you. Yes, and I I was out. You know I was no use to anybody. Um, so it really was the two of them. And yeah, so so knowing the constraints on the ambos as well, I wasn't expecting anyone to be there anytime soon. Um. And I, I was getting cold and tired, and I, and I just thought I'm going. This this is it for me. I'm I'm dying. I'm going to die here. And so, getting that message across to Sam uh, was really, really important. And I read Luke Warburton's book. Um, he's a sergeant. He was my FTO, my training officer, and worked on Pia and, and my team. And he was shot uh, as well about five, six years ago. And his in his book, he mentions that, you know, he's laying there thinking he's going to die and had to get message to his wife. That seems to be, a, a, I guess, a common thing that goes through people's mind at that stage as well. You, you don't want to leave and not have your kids or your partner um, a message to them. And, and so I got, I got Sam to remember, remember that. When, when did help finally come, Helen? Oh, you know... This I and and I, I I would lay down my life for this fella. Uh, Sam's boyfriend, Jack Chapman Burgess, he's in the police. His family lives in Glen Innes. He was over in Glen Innes with his family on this night. He he was working at Moree uh, as a policeman but was currently restricted because 
being a boy, he's fallen out the back of a ute or something and damaged his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. So he was restricted. Moree Police Station is on our channel, so they're obviously hearing the chaos um, and knowing that it's you know a few chicks in um, in Glen Innes, and someone from Moree has contacted Jack. And told him that you know the shit is going down. Uh, Sam was working, so Jack could hear all the chaos from the police radio in the background of his phone call. It was January, so it's pretty pretty warm um, for, for Gleninus, and he has raced to the scene in his own car. So he's had like maybe one of those Ford Rangers or you know one of those sort of good solid youth and he has flown down to the scene in his own car and has parked it perpendicular to the police car so the police cars you know obviously in the parallel to the curb so he's he's crossed the um footpath to park us all in oh yeah yep to protect you. protect us, yeah, to give us some, some cover because, you know, believed that there was no longer a threat but didn't know. He's jumped out of his his ute and he's come around. I'm laying there on the ground on my side. So I looked up and there he is in his thongs and cargo shorts <laughs> throwing on a gun belt or, you know, just, just doing this amazing stuff and... You know, that it's funny because I looked up and I went, okay, Sam's here, Mark's here, Jack's here, we're parked in, it's all going to be okay, I'm not going to die. And and so you get that momentary feeling of, yeah, it, it's all going to be all right. And then he's asking about the Ambos and I can hear Sam, you know, upset in her voice because they're not there and yeah and then uh, God, you'd feel so helpless oh, I know what what do you do there's nothing you yeah. but wait and yeah and so Sam I asked Sam to get my phone out of my pocket and call um I had a the kid's dad um we're not together anymore um yep so she called him and um, and then the Ambos arrived and some other police. I think Jamie and Kim, Jamie and Kim turned up and they, Jamie I think came up to the hospital with me and Sam. So Sam and I went up to the hospital, to Gleninus Hospital. Mark stayed at the scene because he wanted to um, clear the house. And he's injured. Um, yeah. he's, you know, he's got his face ripped open and he stayed till other police arrived and cleared the house and obviously found the man on the balcony and he had died. And then he came up to the hospital. Um, and I was conscious and breathing, although in a lot of pain, um, conscious and breathing the whole time. But then my friend Woody arrived and he's like he's like my brother. And you know, he's just a big 
Um, always felt uncomfortable with hugs, but I'm a hugger. And, you know, so I'd always give him a bit of a tease because he, he'd always tease me because at every job I'd be hugging people. And um, yeah, yeah, so not every job, but, you know, a lot of the ones that needed a good hug. And so um, he'd always tease me about that. But then I'd always sort of tease him because he felt really uncomfortable with, like, contact. So yeah, yeah. So he turned up and I'd had my clothes cut off me at that stage. And I, still, at this point, I did not know what my injury looked like. I had no idea. didn't know anything about it. And so he's turned up and the, the craziness of country towns is he got recalled he was at a dress-up party so he was out for the night and his his um wife carrie she said to me later i don't know what it was hen but woody said i'm not drinking tonight you know normally you go to a party have a couple of drinks but for some reason when he was told Woody don't, yeah. you know, in, in his head, so he didn't drink anything. Carrie did the driving. He got recalled and turned up to clear a house where his colleagues had just been shot and he was dressed up like the Blues Brothers. So, you know, so he's turned up in a, like a black... Jacket, black pants, white shirt, black glasses. Yeah. And um yeah, and he's a he's a very nice looking man. And so I'm up at the hospital and I've had my clothes cut off me, I'm just laying there and Woody Woody turns up. Um and I just look up and the look on his face, I'll never forget it. Um like my heart's already broken and it's just you know, absolutely crumbled at this point because the look on his face, yeah. I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make it. Um, and he gave me a big hug. And, and I just, I looked around, you know, just in the emergency ward up at the Blenningers Hospital, and it's not a big hospital. Um, it's only a... A category two, like I had twins and I had to go to Armidale to have them because you can't have twins because the category okay. hospital's not high enough. So it's, it's you know, it's yeah, pretty basic, yeah. pretty basic yeah, stuff. For anything that's yeah. a bit more serious, you have to go to Armidale or Tamworth. Yeah. So I could get, um, you know, initial care there. Um, and I was looking around in the emergency ward and it was packed. Um, obviously nurses, doctors have been recalled, cops are in there, ones that are starting to arrive from um, from other stations, bosses, of course. Um, and I just thought, these guys are going through this as well. Woody is probably never going to forget clearing that house and finding that man, he'll never get that image out of his head. He'll never get the image of me there with a, you know, a bullet wound in my neck out of his head. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You'll never get the image of Mark with a cut open face. Sam sitting there just speechless, you know, um... You know, you're right, Helen, the the ripple effect of a situation like you've been in, uh, as you say, it, it's not just you and Mark and Sam, it's all the other people. Yeah. Like, as you say, like Woody and the people that come to the the hospital, the, the nurses, like to see a police woman, a police person, it doesn't matter, woman or man, mm. injured, it, it just 
it goes to the very heart of uh, I couldn't imagine anyone not being affected. People that work in hospitals, they care for people. And to see an emergency responder so seriously injured would be heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I think... And when you're in country towns, there's not many cops, so you know the people you work with quite well, you know, know their families. Uh, So it's very very close to home. Uh, They know know your kids. They would would know, you know, they're going to know, hang on, Jules and Sasha, or, you know, what what about them? so they definitely. So, so were you? You obviously didn't get treated there. You were transferred somewhere else. Do you re, do you remember the transfer? Or you said you're in a coma for how long? Uh, that I was placed in a coma when I was at the Gold Coast University Hospital. So they, we had the Westpac helicopter turn up, um, and that transported Mark and I up to the hospital up on the Gold Coast. Do you remember that trip? Yeah, I was conscious during that because, oh, my gosh, I reckon these flight guys were the hottest guys I've seen. <laughs> 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 oh well, you, you, are, you are possibly nearly dying and oh, I think you've got to, you know, you've got to. <laughs> because Jamie, Jamie's a girl. She came over to me as well when I'm like, she cared for me so well, both then and even now. Um, she's come over to me and said, Hen, check out the, the <laughs> and so I'm thinking, oh, thank the Lord. If this is the last thing I see, I'm going to be. Oh, you're a disgrace. I am. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm happily a disgrace. Oh, that is too oh, funny. And so I thought, oh, this is all right. And I get into the helicopter and I vomit. And I thought, Oh dear. These are the hottest guys you've ever seen and you're vomiting. <laughs> now I'm a disgrace, Narelle. <laughs> <laughs> I got the flight up there and Mark is there as well. And um, I remember I just kept apologising for vomiting because I'm thinking, oh, we're in a helicopter, this must stink. You know, and they're all smelling. Oh, and so I was just embarrassed. And yeah. When I got up to the hospital, uh, oh, that now that's chaos once again because I'm just laying there and a team of people come over and they're just pulling your legs, pulling your arms, you know, looking for injuries. And so, yep, there's nothing wrong with this point or, you know, this body part, so that team will leave and then another team will come in so they're narrowing down what specialists they need for your injury. Oh, yeah. So all yep. these teams of people come in, go, yeah, that's my field, so they'll stay, and, and then other teams will just leave. And so all that's, all these people are running and talking and you don't understand a word of what they're saying. Yeah. So, um, so I remember that happening, and from that point on I don't remember anything else. Um, so I was placed in a coma. I think I think I was in a coma for about two days. Okay. Um, and when I came out, 
I couldn't speak. I had a, I couldn't breathe on my own, so I had a like a tube down my throat. Oh, yeah. yep. hurt. But again, I still didn't know what my injury was like. I know, and I again, it's not a criticism of anyone, but I don't know. People may not want to tell you, or, or they don't want to be the bearer of bad news. I don't know whether it's a cop thing or a me thing, but I'm pretty blunt. And you just wanted to know. Just yeah. give me the news. Don't don't yeah. you know sugarcoat it. Just tell me. But no one really did. Um. So I still had no idea how bad it looked. And we're women. We're you know we like to know <laughs> how we're going, how we're looking. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, were, were any of those? Were any of those? Um, you know, heaps of people that were checking you out to see where the injury was. Were any of them hot? No. Do you remember them being hot? No. And it <laughs> was the neuro, the neuro doctor who was treating me. Um, really, really nice. All of the all of the nurses and doctors up there was so good, and. He looked so young, this guy, and I thought I'd got like Doogie Howser treating me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and one day, um, I think we were just talking about, you know, different ages, and he says, well, how old do you think I am? And I said, I reckon you're about 33, and I was spot on. Oh. Um, and there I was, and he, oh, I don't know how much younger he is. I'm not even going to say how much younger he is than I am, but, you know, just – just how funny it was that you know he was he was that young yeah. but that well trained and good and you know and so young. Yeah. When you woke up uh, in the hospital, did uh, when did you see your kids and your part? I met at that stage. You were still married, were you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. What have I asked there? <laughs> all I will, I guess, all I will say about that is, when you are going through a situation like this, and especially following it, when you are trying to make sense of the whole medical discharge process, you need people around you. Who will support you? Because um, mm-hmm. it's hard enough um, as it is, but you add what I call trauma brain um, and PTSD or whatever mental health issues that something like this brings on. Make sure that you have good people around you. Um, so the kids, I saw the kids, um, I didn't want them to see me in the ICU. That I, I just didn't, one, I, I couldn't speak for a few days. Uh, so all the people that came in, I had to write, write on a piece of paper too. Um, I remember Sam's dad came in and I wrote him a note about how wonderful Sam is. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I was very tired as well. So people came in and they were there 
but I don't even remember it because I was just so groggy and I, I, friends, good friends turned up, Bib and David. I think I looked at them and just went straight back to sleep. <laughs> and coming from Gleniness, that's not a quick trip. So these people had put in so much <laughs> time to get there and I, I looked at them and went back to sleep. Hey, Hannah, I think they may forgive you. Yeah. I, I, think, I think you've been through a bit and I think yeah. just the fact that you're alive yeah. and that you had your eyes open for a couple of seconds would have been all they needed. Yeah, I, I haven't heard any complaints from them yet. Um, <laughs> so the, when I went to the ward, so that was about day five, I went just into the general ward and that's when the kids were brought up. Uh, my friend Miranda brought them up and I remember at that stage um, we had two foster girls with us. So there were my two kids, two foster kids as well. Um, I'll just call them my kids as well if you don't mind. I don't, I don't like that word foster. So four kids turned up and... My little two, I had twins, a boy and a girl, Jules and Sasha, and they were six years old when this happened. Um, oh, God. And I remember when they were brought to the ward, they stopped at the door and didn't want to go any further when they saw me. And I didn't look too bad then, um, you know, considering what I was like in the ICU. I, I thought this will be okay for them to see. Um, yeah. And they had to be coaxed to come in to me. Um, oh, it would just be so frightening, so confronting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that that was hard on them. That was hard on me for them to be scared to come near me. They thought they were going to hurt me. Um so that was like day five. When did you go home? The next day, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. It was just so strange. And and so, you, like I said, you'd have so many different teams that were dealing with you. So there was a neuro team. There was um, like an ear, nose and throat team. There was a diet team, you know, because of my swallowing. Um, oh, yeah. There was, you know, the psych people would come and see you as well. And the one team would say you'll be on a liquid diet for about six weeks and then you might be able to step up to food a little bit more. Then you might step up to, you know, proper food again. And then another team would come in and say, no, nah, we want you on solids before you leave. And so it was um, difficult in that respect. Okay, look, to be honest, Helen, I think we've probably uh, pushed you, uh, we've pushed you a lot today and I appreciate all that you've told us, but I think it's uh, a, a big strain and uh I'm going to make the decision of uh, wrapping this up because I uh, I want you to have a voice to tell your kids off tonight or whatever you have to do. <laughs> so, uh, so what are the long-term effects of your injury, Helen? 
like, like were you ever able to go back to work, to policing? No. I, um, I made the choice not to return uh, based on, and it was a very hard choice, uh, made me cry for a long time. Um, due to my physical injuries and my psychological injuries, I was not able to do the, the job that I, I wanted to do. I know that the police would have accepted me back uh, in a restricted role, which would mean I'd sit in an office <coughs> protected because I don't want to look at guns, I don't want to look at the police uniform, I don't want to hear the radio. Yeah. So I'd have to yeah. sit in an office and that would do me worse. So yeah. I made that choice to leave. Still struggle with that. I totally get that, Helen, because um, that's why I, well, I couldn't go back to work myself, but I also felt the same. It would break my heart to hear the radio, to watch my colleagues running out the door, you know, to go somewhere and I couldn't go. Just I, I totally get that. And and so what are the long-term effects? Uh, not, and I'm talking, sorry, I'm talking about the physical at this point, not because we'll get on to the psychological, but the physical long-term effects of um, being shot in the neck. I obviously will always have a scar on my neck, um, which is visible and and it's a constant reminder um, that that's hard. It's uh, about six or seven centimetres long. Oh, my voice is different and it fatigues quickly. I can't yell at my kids as much as I love to. <laughs> they don't mind. But you do your best. <laughs> and if I'm calling them down for dinner, I actually have to bang on the wall, not yell out because they can't hear me. Yeah. So there's that side of things. There's pain. I, I get pain in my neck, um, just shooting pain for no reason. I also get pain if I drive for too long, uh, sit, you know, for too long, with you know, without moving. Uh, I have restricted movement. And I also have to be very careful when I... Um, swallow foods, certain foods like steak that uh, it gets caught for some reason. Like it's like my throat just doesn't work as easily. <clears throat> and when I'm drinking, I have to um, take a sip, like out of a Red Bull can, for example. Um, you, you know, you, you take your sip, um, but I have to then put my head down and then swallow um, the delicious Red Bull. Um, <laughs> otherwise, it it goes in, there's a hole in there and then if it goes in, if the liquid goes into that hole, I then start suffocating. Um, so I start coughing and I'm, you know, I can't breathe. So there's a few things that I have to, um, that, that will never be, um, improved. I have a lot of shrapnel still in my neck 
that it was too dangerous to retrieve it. And there's one piece that is really close to my spine, uh, which was um, the major concern, obviously, was if I was to um, take a, a knock to my neck, uh, the, the consequence of that, whether it would paralyse me or, you know, cause me to be a quadriplegic, um, if it was to move into, into, my, into my spine, so that that was a big deciding factor on leaving the police as well, because I wouldn't. I'd be too worried about getting injured. My colleagues would probably be too worried about me getting injured uh, with that as a possible consequence, and the police wouldn't let me go out there if that was a risk. So they're the they're the physical, you know, in a, in a small nutshell, they're the physical. That, that's that's. A huge list, Helen, uh, but I suppose the thing that we are all thankful for is that you survived and you've got your kids and you've got your life, but I am, I understand, and that's just the, psych- the uh, physical injuries, and I, I might get here because I can hear um, in your voice that you're, you're struggling a little bit. So I might get um, Pia. Yeah. Uh, Pia. Can you just tell us, uh, Helen was obviously diagnosed with PTSD and uh, I think a lot of people don't understand a lot about PTSD. In fact, on the weekend I was pulled up by calling it PTSD and that we should be calling it PTSI because it's an injury. Correct. Because if the, the more we describe it as a um, um What's the D? Disorder. Disorder. The, the longer that we refer to it as, as a disorder, it doesn't help the stigma. So can you take us through what you do and, uh, you know, shine the light a little bit on PTSI, as I'm going to refer to it from this, this day on? Yeah, sure. Well, it is an injury and um, I think you're right in, you know, we're trying to change the stigma around it. Um, for so long, so many emergency services um, don't want to acknowledge it, but we are of the of the opinion that let's face it, we're in a career that we are seeing trauma every single day, um, and even the definition of trauma to emergency services is very different to that of a normal person. Um, you know, a normal person doesn't see, um, you know, a severely assaulted person every day or a deceased person every day or a, you know, fatal car accident every day, um, whereas emergency service workers do. Um, especially within the police, you might see several of those traumatic incidences in a block of shifts. Um, so that is what trauma is. Um And I think Helen explains it really well in her raw um, account of what happened to her is the fight and the flight system where, um, you know, that moment where she couldn't hear, she could just see because that's what her body needed her to do in that moment. Um, You know, her everyone when you're in that fight and flight goes through a um, sympathetic response. So, you know, your blood gets pushed through your system into your vital organs um, in case you need to run. Um, 
it's that it's that system with PTSD that gets locked on. So someone who has PTSD, for example, myself, um, who served 18 years, I don't have one traumatic incident like Helen does. Um, I have several traumatic incidences that for so long that um, sympathetic nervous system was locked on into that fight and flight that that was my only response. So I was constantly at that level 10 response my entire life, whether I was home, whether I was trying to sleep, uh, whether I was working, whether I was with my kids. It was constantly at a level 10 and that's when the injury occurs. So so we started emergency um, after I was um, medically diagnosed with PTSD after 18 years of service in the New South Wales Police. Um, a girlfriend of mine, Alana, who I went to uni with, um, also suffered the same injury but two years prior to me. And um, we were both general duties sergeants and I remember the day she she wanted to talk to me so I met with her and she goes, you know, PR, she's tr- explaining to me all these symptoms she was having and I'm like, I'm really sorry but I just don't get it. Like, I, you know, I, hadn't, I was still working, functioning. Um, it wasn't till two years later And I say this with no word of a lie, it hit me like a ton of bricks. One day I was okay, the following day I couldn't function. Um, I couldn't put on my uniform. I remember that day walking into the police station, arriving there, trying to get out of the car for my shift, the trembling, and I remember just thinking to myself over and over again, what are you doing? What are you doing? I was looking at myself in the mirror going, what are you doing? Um, to then the point where I became physically ill and I had to have a professional say to me, you have PTSD. So it wasn't until that point that I didn't even acknowledge any symptoms for those 18 years prior. Um and then the following, you know, following week or so, I called Alana and I said, I'm so sorry. I totally get it. Um, and was lucky enough that we had each other to bounce all of our symptoms, all of our triggers off, um, you know, where we were in the whole process of recovery. And we just said, look, if there's, if we're feeling this way, surely other people are feeling this way. And we wanted to provide a service and a charity that's independent to any of the organisations um, to show people that there is a way out of PTSD to emergency, a better future. Um, and also as just, you know, one-on-one support and guidance um, so that people don't get lost Um in the system because it's very scary, it's very lonely. Once you lose your tribe of people, that camaraderie, uh, you lose your purpose, uh, you lose your drive, um, you may lose, you know, your family, you may lose other things. Um, It's a very, very dark hole um, to be in. So that's why we created the charity to act as a support network for others that are experiencing Mm -hmm. the same. Everything you say, Pia, is just, it's a mirror of me and my situation. And uh, I've got to say, I just want to say thank you from everybody for what you do for particularly uh, police, but just anybody uh, in, is it 
just police or do you, uh, is it first responders as well that you help, that emergency help? Yeah, it's uh, New South Wales Emergency Services um, and we've also had such a great response that we've just opened up our ACT branch um, as they were just reaching out for support because unfortunately, sadly, they don't have any support in um, the ACT so we've been able to offer our services throughout the ACT. And just on that, Narelle, you know, you're saying it rings truth with you. I think that it rings truth with most emergency services. Um, that's the career we've chosen, right? We've, we know that we're going to be exposed to things like that. So why are we not talking more openly about it and why are we not teaching skills to deal with these issues early on in our career so that we can maintain a career? Because like Hen said, I loved the job. I was in it forever until someone had to say to me, you cannot go back. This is not good for you. So why why aren't we teaching these young constables, you know, to deal with this and learn the skills, how to deal with your emotions so that we can prevent uh, everyone from falling out of the funnel? They don't teach it out at the academy. and Well, they didn't, and I, I hope that they have changed their attitude, as in all police, all academies, all over Australia, probably all over the world. The psychological part of policing is as important as the physical side. And I have tried and tried to get out to the academy. I do it for nothing and I just can't get out there. I don't know what it mm. is. But uh, anyway, that's for another day. But, mm. Pia, would you come on to my podcast, you and I and Alana, have a chat? Because I think what you do for the emergency services is just so good. It, to actually speak with somebody who has had lived experience, you just get it, you know? Yes. That's the thing. You just get it. And I don't think until you go through it do you really understand. Um, but there are so many people out there silently suffering, um, which we want to help. That's what worries me. Yeah. 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 So um, we'll close for today. Thank you, Helen, uh, so much. I know you're very late for your luncheon appointment. I do apologise. But I couldn't, I couldn't stop you halfway, Helen. Your, your story, your experience is just so oh, raw and inspiring. Oh, my goodness, is it what? Uh, so go and have your lunch. Uh, eat very slowly, Helen. Don't. <laughs> We're having dumplings. Will you be right with dumplings? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for your time. And, Pia, we will be in contact yeah. because I want to get the word, as you do, we want to get the word out there. Thanks. But, Helen, take care. Thank it, you. It's lovely, it's lovely to talk to you and um, enjoy your lunch. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, ladies. Thanks. Bye. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, 
hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A T R E O N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much.